Hello and welcome to an exciting episode of Chipping Away, where your hosts Akash and Durga take you on journeys of South Asia, its history, culture, archaeology, and everything in between. Today is a special episode, one commemorating a very important event in the story of India's past. On 30th May 1863, a young geologist, while doing his geological surveys, came across an interestingly shaped rock. This turned out to be one of the first paleoliths found in India and that young man was Robert Bruce Foote, who is now considered as a father of Indian prehistory. Why is he considered as the father of Indian prehistory? Not only was he the one to find the first stone tool, but his extensive work all over southern India, especially related to different time periods of Indian prehistory, has given him this moniker. To find out more, we have with us Professor Shanti Papu from the Sharma Center for Heritage Education, Chennai. Not only is she a stalwart in the field of Indian prehistory, but she has also continued to work in areas that Bruce Foote himself has initiated archaeological and paleolithic research in. Furthermore, she has also done a study into his life and times and published various works regarding the same. Thank you, ma'am, for being here with us. Hello, ma'am. Hello, ma'am. Hi, Akash. Hi, I'm really happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. Ma'am, thank you for accepting our invitation. We've been fans of your work forever and to have you here is a big honor for all of us. Actually, I'm a real fan of Chip In Away and I've been following you and it's been great. So congratulations and keep it up. Thank you so much, ma'am. Oh, wow. Thank you. That means a lot. Yes, indeed. Today, we are here to talk about Robert Bruce Foote, who is considered the father of Indian prehistory. And we know you're working in an area and a region, one of the sites, Atirampakkam, that he reported for the first time. But why is he considered the father of Indian prehistory? Okay, well, Foote is quite a remarkable personality. And I've always been fascinated by him and his research. And a lot has been written on him already. You've got T.K. Chakravarti's work, Dr. K. Padaya, Ravi Kotsetta, so many others. So many volumes are there in his honor. And as you correctly said, I was always fascinated, partly because we are researching the regions where he began his work, but also he was far more than that. And I think somewhere I've written that he was not just a geologist with an interest in prehistory. He was a geologist, archaeologist, ethnographer, paleontologist, museologist, and artist. And he had such wide-ranging interests that when you look and you read his papers, and there's geology and prehistory, of course, but there's also a lot of ethnography and observations on uh, the life around him. There are references to Indian epics like the Ramayana. There's folklore, there's history, there are monuments, and even, you know, books by contemporaries or people earlier than him, like Meadows Taylor, and above all, an artist. So when he saw things, he saw landscapes from the perspective of an artist. This we see not only in his paintings and illustrations, but also in his writing. So overall, why is he the father of Indian priestry? It's for me very obvious because of all these reasons and more. And it's not just that he discovered the first Paleolithic tool in India. There were people who had discovered stone tools before him sporadically. And Valentin Ball, as you know, was also active around the same time. And um, yet the credit goes to foot for very valid reasons. And firstly, he was able to understand the significance of that discovery. When he found the first hand axe at Pallavaram, now part of Chennai, 
a lot went on in his mind and i'll talk about that maybe later and he could relate this find to what was happening in europe the great debates on antiquity that were going on over there and therefore situate this in context and that's not all apart from these early discoveries he went on not only to discover sites in practically all over southern india and parts of western india but he was also able to situate these in a global perspective describe them and their contexts and publish so he got everything he worked on out as fast as he could and that was really in difficult conditions in fact there is a paper in which he talks about the weariness of a solitary life and stuck in the field for many months cut away from everyone no access to scientific literature and yet along with his uh, ordinary work he was able to publish all this and keep in touch with people like john evans and others he could attend meetings whenever possible display tools which he found in india and, and you know talk about them to everyone so that there was no gap in communication so what i feel is is what brings his work alive and why he is so relevant even today is that he moved beyond description to interpretation many of these were wrong we know that now and he admitted it himself contradicting some of his previous work as well but he put together whatever he found to make some sense to build some coherent pictures of what he thought the whole story was in indian prehistory and that's why i feel there's an honesty in his work and that honesty touches us through time so that's one of the reasons why all of us wherever we are in india who have continued in his footsteps to put it very uh, bluntly have always felt some connect with what he has written whether it is on the tools or whether classification systems or whether we agree or even disagree with him there is a connection and i think that's what makes him really great so if you go back right to the early days say right from the 1930s onwards you see even sankalya and others beginning their work for example in the gujarat prehistory expedition stating that they acted on clues left behind by foot and whoever you read right up till today you will see archaeologists repeating the same story as of how they followed his directions and uh, practically all prehistorians in india have uh, followed in his footsteps in our case this was pretty literal for example we followed his directions like turn left at the small pagoda and walk down the gully and then turn right or whatever it may be so i think all these together make him a very very significant figure that's wonderful that's a bit related to his work but let's go back and look at the man and the person that he was what made him who he is do we know anything about him Well that's an interesting question because we knew a lot about his work but very little about him and one of the papers i wrote was to explore this aspect the untold story as i called it and in this i was very privileged to be able to meet his grandson the late mr john foot and his wife mary and interact with their son as well mr jonathan foot and also i was greatly aided by mrs florence ashton who was a descendant of his father in law reverend peter percival and along with archival sources it is their information which they gave me that helped me to put a little bit of his life together 
So there is some information about his birth on 22nd September 1834 in Cheltenham, England, and his father died very young. And um, there's not much information as to where he studied or other details of his uh, early life. But we do know that he arrived in India as a young geologist on 20th September 1858. And he landed at Cape Comorin, now Kanyakumari, where he was assigned duties in the then Madras presidency. And I think India entered his soul at that point because we see a wonderful painting, a pen and ink wash of his, um, it was called, I think, You of uh, Cape Comedian. And it's something really beautiful. And soon after, he was so deeply involved in the geology and prehistory and culture of the country that he sort of never went back. And after his retirement, as you know, he was um, appointed in princely state of Baroda and then in Mysore in the Department of Geology. But he retired to Yercot in Tamil Nadu. He died in Kolkata on 29th December 1912, but his ashes were taken back and buried in a church in Yercot. So it's uh, you can anyone can go there and pay their respects there with his family. And uh, what's really important is his family. And I really found it fascinating when I looked at the involvement of his family in his work. So you have his first wife, Elizabeth Ann Percival, who was the daughter of Reverend Peter Percival. And Peter Percival was a fascinating character in his own right. He was a Tamil scholar. He wrote books on the Vedas and on Tamil proverbs. And it is perhaps this influence of his knowledge on India that maybe influenced Bruce Foot. I feel he was quite proficient in the language and he knew terminologies, he knew local terms for various formations or various objects which he uses sprinkled across his work. And his wife Elizabeth Ann actually drew some of the plans for the stone tools. And we also know that his son Henry Bruce Foote excavated the famous Billa Surkam cave complex, some of the caves there. And a lot of his family members took a lot of interest in his work. We had his daughter, I think, picking up uh, tools somewhere as well. And his second wife, Eliza Melissa Wells, also did so. And what I really found really fascinating was when I dug out his will. One of the statements in his will, I found, made it a very unique document because it's written there, I give accepting my collections of Indian prehistoric antiquities or the proceeds thereof and etc etc. So he's probably one of the first persons whom I know of who has stone tools mentioned in his will. So overall it is this mix of his work, his personal relationships with various people, his family, friends and others who all helped him that come out in all his articles. And um, that's what I wrote about. And I find it so interesting to think about these networks of connections. It is quite fascinating to see a person not as a straight-jacketed researcher in that day and age and actually putting the human into the research. Absolutely. And I wonder what are the sites um, and areas that Robert Bruce Wood worked on? Okay, so that is really extensive. And if you go through his catalog, which was actually published posthumously, so he had a draft and everything ready by 1901. And then uh, Padia has written about this. And then the final came out later with some changes and some issues as well. You see the scope of his work. And he had published on this throughout right from 1866 onwards, right from Pallavaram, the very, very important paper, he had published and he had published maps as well along the way. So you can see that his interest was also very geographic. 
And we have, of course, Dr. Subbarao much later, who you wrote on the personality of India and the importance of geography and environment. And we see this in Bruce Foote's writing as well. And it's really interesting because in his catalogue, when you look at it, apart from the periodization and the descriptions on chronology and whatnot, he chose to divide it on a geographical basis. So he had 459 sites. I've just got some figures down. 42 Paleolithic, 252 Neolithic, 17 Iron Age, and five are unclear. And he chose to arrange it geographically in nature. And he wrote a lot about this as well. Uh, so obviously, we start with the very famous areas where we are now working in the Madras presidency, Pallavaram, Atrambakam, and other sites. And this is where some of his really unique thoughts began. For example, at Pallavaram, although he found only a few tools, later that year he went on to Atrampakam, which was actually discovered along with his very close friend and colleague William King. And this William King also happens to be, I think, the son of William King who coined the term for the Neanderthals, if I'm not mistaken. So they are um, related. So there were these networks all over the 19th century. And when he found this particular hand axe in a pit at Pallavaram, there are two statements which we find of great interest. One is, and he said at the time of writing this very famous paper in 1866, that his knowledge of flint implements only came from some publications he saw in a magazine called The Geologist, and he was not familiar with what sites. He wrote that he was inspired by Prestwich and other discoveries in Europe, so we know that he was not unaware of what stone tools were, but he was unsure. And so he showed it to William King and to his family members. And then later when he found the site at Atrampakam and more tools, it was only then that he was very sure about his discovery. But when we look at his catalogue published much later, there's a slight difference. And he writes there that he was greatly stirred by the discoveries in Europe, Pusha de Perth, Prestwich, etc., John Evans. And that, he said, it was a matter of pure satisfaction rather than great surprise when he discovered the tools. And then he was bitten, as he said, with the desire to find more and his love for them went on increasing. So with that beginning, and then of course, the phenomenal observations at the site of Atrambakam and many others in the region, where he brought in aspects of obviously the stratigraphy, but also of classification of tool types, adapting this from what John Evans had suggested and including types which he felt was specific to India. So he brought that in. He, in fact, at this time, there was a very famous, um, very interesting discussion between Foot and King as to the meaning of what all these flakes meant scattered over the landscape. And this is something which today we call site formation studies, but it actually happened way back then. And I wrote a small paper about this issue. So he spoke about fauna, he spoke about ethnography, and he tried to bring some sense and put this, as I said, into a global perspective and compare. And this comparison and this attempt to situate whatever he found right up along the East Coast and then in what he called the Southern Maratha country at that time, uh, very, very famous areas in Bellari, in Gulbarga, in the Kataprapa, Malaprapa areas in Karnataka, where he found uh, more artifacts, identified what he called were manufacturing sites. So all this went on along with his normal work as part of the GSI. And when he went to this famous conference in uh, Norwich 
in England, he could actually take some tools there. And that's where I think the real interest of the European um, archaeologists came in. When they were stunned by the similarity in tool types and this dialogue he kept up over the years. So that is also very, very fascinating. Then we have, of course, his work in relatively less known areas. For example, he did a lot of work in southern Tamil Nadu. And although we know about his work with the Teris, that is the beautiful red sand dune sites, he also explored other areas as far as Paleolithic or prehistoric sites are concerned. And these are studies which our team has taken up later following in his footprints as well as others. And what is equally interesting is when he visited these beautiful theory sites, he not only appreciated the archaeology, of course, he was wrong about many things down there and in their association, but his description of the theory dunes by themselves with the sea and the sun and the blue sky and red dunes was something extremely poetic, if you may call it so. Apart from that, what we tend to forget is his observation. Actually, he was one of the first to identify a Neolithic artifact in Tamil Nadu. But it was not the first in India, but the first definitely for uh, Tamil Nadu. And he went on to discover all these sites which he called Neolithic because of cells and ringstones and other artifacts all over the Chevroy Hills, Salem and areas which people have gone back to over the years as well. So that's also something very, very fascinating. And of course, we are all familiar with his incredible work on what was termed the cinder mounds or the ash mounds and his identification of them as being village sites. And all these areas have had a lot of follow up over the years. You have um, our own work down south and Dr. Padaya, Ravi Korisetam, Petraglia, Dr. Joshi, R.S. Papu, Shushma Deo, so many people in Andhra and MLK Murthy and later on others literally followed at all the sites which he had worked on. So when you speak of the geographic scope of his discoveries, it's not only vast in space but also in time, right from the Paleolithic onwards looking at issues of culture sequence, periodization, gaps in the record, all these issues were covered by him. And that's something I think for a single person to do and under those circumstances is something quite amazing. Indeed. And these are concepts and themes that we're all continuing to work on. And as an entire discipline, we're still trying to build upon things that he as an individual laid the foundation to. Absolutely. <laughs> That is wonderful stuff. And even some of the concepts that you spoke about echo with a lot of modern day paradigms of how we are working within Paleolithic archaeology. Do you think it was because of his training in geology that he had this uh, possible equitability between geological sciences and approach and application into archaeology? Yes, I think so. Absolutely. Uh, without that, I don't think he would have been able to make such sense of the context of the artifacts. And this is something he goes on writing about. It was very, very important for him. And we see that, of course, he was wrong at many sites, but that's not because of any observations he made. It's just because he didn't have the time to excavate them. For example, at Atrambakam and other sites in the region. And what I always found interesting is that he looked at different hypotheses and he was not afraid to say that he was wrong. 
For example, in 1866, when he wrote about the development of the landscape around Atharambakam, he had this concept of a marine deposits and a sea and in which tools, Paleolithic people were roaming in catamarans and they dropped their tools and something like that. But he also attempted to look at the problem of laterites, which still bothers us today and the laterites of different ages. And he tried to work out some chronology for them. He used Charles Lyell's uniformitarian concepts to build up models of elevation of landscapes and therefore tried to calculate some ages of the sites. Of course, these were all very tentative and he knew they were tentative. But in his later work, after a lot more experience, when he found that his hypothesis was possibly wrong, he wrote that. And he said that now he felt something else, maybe pluvial processes or XYZ was going on. And of course, as I've said before, the whole issue of the formation of sites. So when William King felt that these were manufacturing areas, some of the sites, he said, no, there was a greater likelihood of it being the impact of water action. So both of them debated this in a very, very interesting paper in 1866 and its appendix by William King. And they spoke about issues of cognition. They spoke about issues of so many aspects which we pride ourselves on thinking about today. But actually, without any fuss spoken about by Foot and King way back then, and not only that, his simple observations of, say, cattle moving over uh, sites and resulting in flake formation that were not necessarily because of uh, human action, or ethnographic observations on termite action on wooden tools, or so many aspects are there. So all this came up not only because of his observations as from the perspective of a geologist, but also from just looking around and thinking about things, thinking about questions of preservation, thinking about patination, thinking about weathering of artifacts. There's so many aspects which uh, come into his writings. So I think that perhaps the first discussion on site formation in prehistory in India, at least, is in the writings of Bruce Wood. I'm actually awestruck by the multifaceted personality Robert Bruce Wood had, like from a geologist to a painter to also an ethnographer in some capacity. And you also mentioned the aspect about networks, so networking between people across sites and even in terms of ideology and the scientific thought at the time. So I wonder what would be Robert Bruce Wood's legacy for modern archaeologists today? That's a great question. And um, most archaeologists in India have actually followed uh, behind him. And every region that he has uh, studied was followed up at least from the 1930s onwards. Uh, personally, I began my PhD in the very area where Foot and King discovered Paleolithic artifacts in northern Tamil Nadu. And then our team went on to excavate Atharambakam. And at every step along the journey, we always have had at some point to go back to look at what he said. Whether it's work in this area or work in the theories, there's a constant sort of buzz in the camp. Okay, let's see what Foot said about this. And maybe he's got some insights. And he does, actually. So many small observations and insights. And this is also written by Ravi Koriseta, Petraglia and their team as regards the Villa Surbukam Caves, where they speak a lot about his observations there. So when we speak of his legacy, it is a very interesting legacy not only in terms of following up in the region but also in terms of looking at certain ways and certain aspects of his thought whether it is in terms of site formation stratigraphy or paleoclimate ethnoarchaeology if you put it that way or even dispersals he spoke about the movement of populations and he put forward various hypotheses about coastal routes 
or not, which today we speak about as well. So there is always something today that we can learn from what he said way back then. And above all, I think the greatest legacy in my view is that he was not afraid of being wrong. He corrected himself and he was utterly honest in what he wrote. You can get the feeling from his writings and from his follow-up of his writings through time. When he says, okay, I was perhaps not so accurate then and this is what I think now, whatever it is. And also when you speak of networks, in a way, our situation today is somewhat like his. We are, whether before the pandemic or now currently, we are somewhat cut off from the center of action, which is the West, to put it very directly. And we are working sometimes, I feel, on the fringe. We cannot attend conferences. We have uh, limited access to literature. These are problems which I think most archaeologists will agree with me in that we cannot do as much as what we'd like to do. And in many ways, our situation is similar to his stuck in a camp, you know, where he speaks about the loneliness and the isolation and lack of access to scientific literature. And yet at the same time, putting forward theories which were accepted finally by a lot of archaeologists globally and attempting all the time to keep up lines of communication with the leading scholars of the time. In fact, he was in touch with John Evans. He was in touch with uh, so many others and they respected his views. So I think that's also one of the important legacies which we can look at. And above all, the deep love for the land which he felt. And this comes out in all his writings, not only for the subject, but also for the, the love of the land in which he was working. And that's something I think all of us can be inspired by. That's true. And this love is also physically manifested in the fact that he left all of his collections in India. Unlike various other contemporaries at the time, they didn't take them back to Europe to display in museums and their own personal collections. We know that he gave it all to the museums within India and even the Chennai Museum. Yeah, he sold the bulk of his collection, but you're right. In fact, some I think there is a reference somewhere that when he took his tools abroad, somebody wanted some of them, but he refused to part with them. So he had a sort of a great and deep affection for each and every piece, which he very lovingly described and drew. And you can see that in the catalog. That's wonderful. I mean, the man as a legend continues to be legendary and let us follow in his, sorry for the pun, footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> correct, correct. Yes, I think so. And I hope that, uh, you know, all of us can uh, contribute at least a little bit of what he had done. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And it's always a pleasure to speak about food. Although I really have much more to learn about him, but I like uh, speaking about him. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. And thank you for providing a perspective to look at history or prehistory or study of a field through a person's case study because sometimes we lose the sight of the humans in the field. Let's continue this discussion on our future episodes on the Chippinaway podcast. Our new episode will be out just in a matter of 15 days. So stay tuned and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at chippinawayind and send us a line at chippinawayind at gmail.com. So we'll meet soon and until then, Keep chipping away. Bye-bye.
Chip and Away is available on all major streaming websites such as Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and so on. So go ahead subscribe wherever you feel comfortable or you can just log in to Buzzsprout and check out Chip and Away. We have a new episode coming up every fortnight that is after every 15 days so twice a month. Each episode comes with a new theme, new points for discussion and something for us to take back and ponder on. So join us in our journey of understanding our collective past better and to question the existing and new theories and models that we encounter every so often. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at chipinawayind and drop us a line about your comments, inputs and what you would like to hear from us at chipinawayind@gmail.com. In this current environment of chaos, uncertainty and a lot of tension that surrounds us with the pandemic, impending lockdown and other restrictions, let chip in a way be your little moment of recluse from the world around you. Help us make this little movement a little more by reading the blog posts that go with our podcasts and other discussions online and offline. For the blogs you can check out www.kelmighty.com that is k a l e m i g h t y.com we have all the links in the description for our podcast and you can check it out online on google spotify and other major streaming sites so see you again in a matter of 15 days with a new topic a new theme and something new to pick your brain with Till then keep chipping away stay safe and take care bye bye